Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas. And each week, I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. Before I begin, you know I like to do a little bit of a current events update. I'm just hoping to preserve for future listeners some memory of what was happening at the time I recorded this episode. It was a tough week for Donald Trump. I honestly feel like I say that every week, and it's always true. The twice-impeached, four-time-indicted former president and wannabe future dictator just can't seem to catch a break. I'm sorry, you can tell I'm obviously biased when it comes to Trump. But in fairness to all my listeners, I will do my absolute best to just report the facts. It's going to be hard for me, but let's give it a try. It starts in Colorado, where the state Supreme Court ruled that Donald Trump was in violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and therefore could not be on their primary election ballot. You can go Google this, but the basic gist of this clause is that if you try to overthrow the government, you don't ever get to work in the government again. And I know this is still a concept that many people would like to debate, but it's pretty simple. If you've previously taken an oath as an elected official in government, and then you plan, create, facilitate, or participate in activities that are meant to overthrow or significantly undermine the functioning of that government, you are ineligible to hold office from that point forward. It's like if you get caught shoplifting from Walmart, you'll never be allowed to shop at Walmart again. See how simple that is? So the Colorado court ruled him ineligible to run for president in their state. But the state Republican Party has appealed, and they are seeking an urgent decision from the United States Supreme Court as to whether Colorado's actions will stand. For now, his name remains on the ballot until the appeal is heard. The state of Maine has followed suit, and there it's entirely up to the Secretary of State to determine if someone is ineligible for their primary, and she's determined that that is the case with Donald Trump, again citing the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. The GOP has appealed this decision as well, and it will be taken to court. And you may have heard that a couple of his former lawyers have now flipped on Trump, and are providing evidence against him in both the state and federal election tampering cases. Among them is Kenneth Cheeseborough, who was part of the inner circle during the critical time frame from November 2020 through the January 6th insurrection. He has provided emails, audio tapes, and plenty of firsthand accounts of the length that Trump went to, including Trump's own voice on the recordings, where he's trying to convince Republican electors in the state of Michigan to file fraudulent election certificates, which is felony election tampering. And it's him and Ronna McDaniel saying, don't worry, we'll pay for your lawyers on this call as they try to talk people into breaking the law, which they did. It's shocking. But there's also detailed accounts of the plan to get these fake certificates to D.C. in time for the January 6th session of Congress to certify the election. According to the evidence, they had fake documents from six states, and they wanted to swap out the real certificates and enter the fake ones into the record instead. So Mike Pence would just be handed the fake ones and just read those and make Trump president again. Ta-da! But that involves potentially chartering planes to fly the documents to D.C. In two cases, they found willing couriers, a congressman from Pennsylvania and a senator from Wisconsin. Yes, I'm talking about you, Ron Johnson, who actually took the fake election certificates and hand-carried them to Washington, D.C. 
Luckily, Pence wasn't willing to play along. I guess committing a felony on behalf of a man who never treated him with an ounce of respect was just a bridge too far for him. All of the evidence that Kenneth Cheeseborough and the other lawyers have provided will be part of Jack Smith's federal felony case against Donald Trump. And it looks like Jackie Boy's got a really strong case. And by the way, Wisconsin, please stop electing Ron Johnson. In my opinion, he's a criminal and a traitor, and he doesn't deserve your vote. And finally, with all of the terrible luck Donald Trump is having, you would think this would be the perfect time for one of the other Republican candidates to capitalize on his misfortune. Enter Nikki Haley, who seems to be gaining some steam and catching the eye of serious Republican donors who envision a world beyond the Trump chaos. But Mrs. Haley very publicly fumbled the most basic question a political candidate could ever be asked, which is, what was the cause of the Civil War? And instead of immediately saying the answer that every American over the age of five knows to be true, Nikki went on some sideways tangent about disagreements about how the government would be formed and taking a stand against government overreach. For the record, Nikki, it's a one-word answer. That word is slavery. That's all you had to say. But she didn't. There are people who believe she has irreparably damaged her campaign. And she has spent several days trying to walk it back without much luck. She'll definitely stay in the race, but she's gonna get clobbered over the next couple of weeks until something more newsworthy comes along. Ten years ago, this would have ended her presidential hopes. I mean, (laughs) I'm old enough to remember when Romney said, binders full of women, and Howard Dean let out an enthusiastic, yeah, and they were both dead men walking. So let's just wait and see how this plays out. Okay, let's shift gears and do a movie review. I follow the same template every week. So if you're new to the podcast, here's how it works. I'm going to tell you the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it about. And of course, where you can stream it if you want to watch it. I also answer these three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar worthy? And should you watch it or is it a big fat waste of your valuable time? As a friendly warning, I give my honest assessment of these movies And I sometimes go off on tangents about current events, and I like to rant about things that irritate me. I always seem to mix it with a heaping dose of adult language, so please be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is Oliver. It was released September 26th of 1968. It's directed by Carol Reed. It stars Ron Moody, Oliver Reed, Shawnee Willis, Mark Lester, and Jack Wilde. It was nominated for a total of 11 Oscars, and it won six of them. It won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Score of a Musical Picture, Best Sound, Best Art Direction, and an honorary Oscar was awarded to Anna White for Outstanding Choreography. If you want to watch it, you're going to have to pay $3.99 to stream it on Amazon Prime, Vudu, 
or Apple TV. So what is it about? The movie is based on the 1960 stage musical of the same name, which was an adaptation of Oliver Twist, which is an 1838 novel written by Charles Dickens. I really enjoyed this movie a lot. It was much better than I had anticipated. But let me just preemptively tell you something. This movie is rated G, which means it's supposed to be perfectly suitable for everyone at every age, including little kids. And all I can think is that the person who decides the ratings was drunk that day because there's no way on earth this movie should have been rated G. And there's going to be plenty of times during this episode when you'll see I'm 100% right. As the movie opens, we meet several little boys who are orphans and living in a group home. The home is actually called Workhouse. So it should be no surprise to see these boys are being forced to perform difficult physical labor as their payment for living there. We see a handful of rich old men known as the governors who run the place and they come in, they have a look around before they assemble in a meeting room off the main dining hall. The boys come streaming in for their dinner, which is done in a terrific musical number called Food, Glorious Food. The point being the boys are fed a diet of disgusting gruel and barely enough to keep them alive while they can see the rich fat cats eating a lavish banquet in the next room. These boys simply can't understand why they work so hard, but still can't get a decent meal to fill their bellies. There are two people in charge of the boys at Workhouse, Mr. Bumble and the Widow Corny. Bumble appears to be some type of wannabe military man and upholds very strict rules in the home. She is the matron who ensures the kids are fed and occasionally bathed. This opening scene ends with dozens of boys quickly polishing off their bowls of gruel and wishing they had more. Then there's the famous scene where this sweet-faced little blonde boy named Oliver, who's played by Mark Lester, is goaded by his peers to bravely walk to the front of the room and beg Mr. Bumble, Please, sir, I want some more. Well, this sets off a shitstorm, because these boys should be thankful for what they get and never have the audacity to ask for anything more. For a brief moment, Oliver is a hero among the other boys, but it's clear he's about to receive a significant punishment. The governors decide this little ingrate can no longer live in their fine establishment. So Mr. Bumble takes Oliver out in the streets and tries to sell him to local businessmen. The going rate is about four pounds, which in today's money is equivalent to about five U.S. dollars. Now that's a hell of a price for a nine-year-old indentured servant. The local undertaker seems interested, but he wants to test him out for a week before paying. He's got to make sure this skinny, hungry kid is capable of doing the required work without costing him too much in the basic necessities to keep him alive. I'm going to say it again. This movie's way too fucking dark to be G-rated. Living with The Undertaker starts out well enough for Oliver. He performs his duties with pride and does his best to remain well-behaved. But all good things must come to an end. You see, our sweet little Oliver has a bit of a temper, and he doesn't tolerate anybody talking shit to him. So when a young man at the funeral home starts picking on Oliver about his dead parents, well, it's game on. 
that scrappy little tyke attacks a guy twice his size with reckless abandon. Oliver knows it's time to peace out, so he runs away. He has some pretty impressive survival skills, and after spending a week wandering alone, he finally arrives in London. He's still a hungry homeless kid, but at least he's in a big city where he can more easily blend into the scenery and hope Mr. Bumble never catches up with him. It doesn't take long before Oliver meets another young homeless boy named Jack Dawkins, who his friends call the Artful Dodger. He's played by Jack Wilde. Dodger and several other young boys are part of a large pickpocket and petty crime ring. They sort of report to a man named Fagin, who's played by Ron Moody. Fagin is the ringleader and acts as a little bit of a father figure to the boys. They live in an abandoned building, and as long as they steal from the rich and bring it to Fagin, the boys are given food and shelter and a small sense of security. It's much safer for them to be together under Fagin's watchful eye than to be alone on the streets trying to survive. The boys think Fagin is being fair to them when they split the profits gained by their efforts, but in truth, Fagin is a cheat who keeps the bulk of the reward for himself. Of course, Fagin is quick to take in Oliver, more sneaky little hands to help him add to his treasure trove. Dodger is assigned to teach Oliver the tricks of the trade. Oliver is an eager student, and Fagin knows the sooner he can get this kid up to speed, the sooner he can make money off of him. Essentially, Oliver is right back in a situation where he's put to work in order to make someone else rich. But at least this isn't backbreaking physical labor. It's pickpocketing. The kids aren't fed gruel, but instead they are plied with booze, cigarettes, and moldy meat. What more could Oliver ask for? And don't forget, this is a musical. So most of this plot is being played out in big, sweeping song and dance numbers, and it's really quite enjoyable. Now, our friend Fagin doesn't only deal with children. He also has an arrangement with a career criminal and all-around piece of shit named Bill Sykes, who's played by Oliver Reed. And Oliver Reed is perfectly cast in this role. I don't know what it is about him as an actor. I've seen a few movies he's done, and every time he comes on the screen, I get the heebie-jeebies. To me, he's just creepy-looking AF and always looks like he's up to no good. Sykes is a prolific thief, breaking into homes and taking expensive collectibles that Fagin can easily sell. And not to give too much away, but you know this partnership is going to hit some roadblocks before the end of the movie. Fagin is too greedy, and Bill Sykes is a complete psychopath, so we're already on thin ice. The only redeeming things about Sykes is his girlfriend Nancy. She's played by Shawnee Wallace, and we're going to talk more about her in a few minutes. So it's time for Oliver to hit the streets and start paying his dues. He's out with Dodger and another boy, scouting for potential victims. They spot a rich older man at the bookseller, and Dodger moves in for the take. The victim, a man by the name of Mr. Brownlow, feels Dodger reach into his pocket, and he turns quickly to catch him in the act. But all he sees is Oliver, who wasn't quick enough to run away, and has him mistakenly arrested as the thief. Oliver is hauled off to the clink and will be forced to go before the judge and be punished. Dodger, Fagin, and Sykes are worried that Oliver will rat them out to save his own skin, which isn't true, of course. Oliver isn't a squealer. In fact, he's so frightened he can't even bring himself to speak to the judge at all. Luckily, the bookseller witnessed the entire event and knows Oliver has been wrongly accused. 
the judge agrees to release Oliver. And to make amends for his false accusation, Mr. Brownlow agrees to take in the poor little homeless boy and give him a good home. And in case you haven't guessed it yet, Mr. Brownlow is fucking loaded. But even living in a beautiful home in the upscale neighborhood isn't enough to keep Oliver safe. Fagan and Sykes have him followed and watched because they're still dead set on the idea that this kid's going to rat them out. They come up with the idea to kidnap Oliver and bring him back to the thieves' den where they can ensure he stays silent. Nancy doesn't like this one bit. She argues they need to leave the boy alone, let him have his freedom and enjoy life with the rich benefactor. He's a smart kid. He'll never tell anybody about them. But Sykes disagrees, and he insists that Nancy help him pull off the kidnapping. Although Nancy initially refuses to help, a few minutes of being slapped around by Sykes suddenly changes her mind. I'm going to remind you again. Someone thought this movie should be rated G. Oliver is having his best life. Mr. Brownlow provides him with every comfort, and there's servants to wait on him hand and foot. Oliver notices there's a painting on the wall of a beautiful young woman, and when he inquires about it, he's told the young woman is Mr. Brownlow's niece, who unfortunately is deceased. We can't help but notice she looks a lot like a female version of Oliver. Dun, dun, dun. Put a pin in this. It's going to come back later. Oliver runs some errands for Mr. Brownlow as a way of showing his appreciation for all of the good the man has done for him. And he's earned Mr. Brownlow's trust. He doesn't think twice about giving Oliver some money to pick up items for him at the shops in town. It's during one of these excursions that Sykes, with Nancy's help, manages to kidnap Oliver and take him back to Fagan's place. Remember when I said earlier that Oliver was a bit testy? Well, he does not take kindly to being brought back to Fagan's and forced back into a life of crime. Sykes threatens him that he'll meet a terrible fate if he doesn't play along. Sykes even tries to give Oliver a beating to prove he means business, but Nancy steps in. She's starting to realize her boyfriend is a sadistic fuck and needs to find a way to rescue Oliver. Meanwhile, Mr. Brownlow is doing his best to find Oliver. Bumble and Corny from the workhouse pay him a visit, believing they might have information regarding Oliver's mother that will earn them a reward. They present a locket that belonged to Oliver's mother who arrived at the workhouse penniless and pregnant, and then died during childbirth. Oddly, after her death, they didn't notify anyone or try to trace the locket or the child back to her family. Instead, they pocketed the valuable necklace and kept her son as a slave. Mr. Brownlow is disgusted at them for keeping the locket until a time when they thought they could get a reward, and he tosses them out on their greedy asses. But now he knows the truth. Oliver is his niece's son. The boy is family, and he must do everything he can to get him back. Nancy realizes that Sykes is going to drag Oliver deeper into his terrible life of crime. So she goes to visit Mr. Brownlow. She won't tell him who has Oliver and where they are keeping him, but she tells him to meet her later that night at London Bridge, and she'll bring the boy back to him. Sykes and Fagan have Oliver with them. Sykes will not let that boy out of his sight, so it's going to be a chore for Nancy to get Oliver away from them. They are at a crowded pub, so she and her friend get the whole crowd singing and dancing as a distraction, and she sneaks out with Oliver. Just before she can complete the handoff, Sykes catches up with them, and 
well, if this movie weren't rated G, they would probably show him beating Nancy to death. But we only get to see the shadows of him beating her with a club and then having her blood on his coat. He grabs Oliver as he's just yards away from reuniting with Brownlow and runs off with the child. Brownlow manages to get a description and then assistance from the police and several townspeople. Pretty soon, there's a good old-fashioned, torch-bearing, pitchfork-wielding mob chasing after Sykes, who is dragging Oliver along as a hostage. This doesn't end well for Sykes. He finally gets the punishment that was coming to him, and Oliver ends up safely back with his great-uncle, Mr. Brownlow. Fagin attempts to leave town. He's determined to turn over a new leaf, leave the life of crime far behind. But then that crafty little bugger, Artful Dodger, hands him a stolen wallet. And the two of them realize this is the life they were meant to live. Question one. Does Oliver stand the test of time? Yes, considering the story of Oliver Twist is from the 19th century and the movie is 55 years old, I was pleasantly surprised that it's held up. Even though it takes place in old England, it didn't have that stuffy English feel to it. The songs are incredible. I've never heard any of them before, but they are so catchy, I found myself humming along. Now, while I think, well, actually, I hope, the use of children as laborers isn't a common practice in 2023, but the idea that evil, greedy men will do anything they can to get a leg up isn't a new concept, and it's one that will never go away. It's amazing to me how some people will never consider a life of honest work. They're just not built that way. So there will always be those among us constantly looking for their next scam. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? I certainly think so. It's a great story and it has really big production value. I can understand the Best Director Award for sure, considering all of the different moving parts. And let's be honest, 65% of the actors are children. That couldn't have been easy. The other movies nominated that year were Funny Girl, The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, and Romeo and Juliet. I can't imagine that Oliver won by a landslide, but from start to finish, it's a very enjoyable movie. I can see why Academy voters went in this direction. Ron Moody was nominated for Best Actor for the role of Fagin. And young Jack Wilde was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for playing the Artful Dodger. Neither of them won, but truthfully, I think these two anchor the movie, especially the little kid. His character does a good share of the heavy lifting, even more so than Oliver does. Question three, should you watch it? I'm going to say yes, absolutely. I'm at a point in this project where I'm sort of dreading having to watch some of these movies because I'm certain they're going to be depressing or just really, really, really long. I honestly believed this was going to be a sad, tragic movie about a bunch of starving orphans, but it's much more uplifting than I had anticipated. It's basically the boy version of Annie. So sure, in the beginning, it's a hard knock life, but once the sweet-faced child meets the rich benefactor everything starts coming up roses. I think the soundtrack is excellent. I admit that I'm not a big fan of singers who live in those really high ranges, like when they sing up here. And that happens quite a bit in this movie. The boy who plays Oliver 
and a few of the women are really high sopranos, and it makes my ears hurt. But I would say about 85% of the songs are just perfect. They're catchy with really good lyrics, and many are sung by like the collective chorus of people. It's like these big, happy group sing-alongs, and you can't help but get into it. Like It's a lot of fun. Now, you know, I never would have rated this G, but I do think it's 100% worth the watch. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 58 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or you just want to tell me I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org, and the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations, so please be generous. Thanks, and see you next week.